Welcome to Bethlehem Church Online. I'm Pastor Matt. I'm so excited that you decided to join us for worship today. I hope the singing and preaching of God's Word is uplifting and it gives you just what you need. I'm not sure where you are in your relationship or your walk with the Lord, uh, but I want today to be a blessing. I want you to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that today is encouraging and that it's just what you need. If it's your first time, make sure to click the link in the post and fill out that form. We have a free gift for you following today's service. Thank you so much for joining us and enjoy the service. Go ahead and turn over to uh, Daniel chapter one. That's where we'll be hanging out at. Uh, we're going to go through that chapter real quick. How many of y'all are glad to be in church this morning? All right. Y'all are enthusiastic today and I love it. Sometimes I say something and everybody's just kind of like, and that's, I, you know, I think that's probably me. Uh, but hey, I'm glad y'all are feeling enthusiastic this morning. Uh, so the book of Daniel is really cool. Um, and it, what's neat about it is it's a detailed account of what it felt like to be a part of the royal family of Israel, of Judah, rather, uh, that was taken into exile in Babylon. Um, and they were a part of a program where Nebuchadnezzar was wanting to uh, take the, you know, <laughs> the spoils of war, so to speak, the promised uh promising children of, of Judah and import them and make them servants of his, uh, his, his purposes and what he wanted. Um, and so Daniel's kind of like an outside or uh, an inside look rather into that whole process and it's unique in that. Um, and a lot of the Bible <clears throat> or the Old Testament rather is, is about that period of time that we would call the exile where they were exiled from their land because of their sin and served uh, foreign leaders for hundreds of years. And so this is a really cool look into that. Um, and as we jump in, what's, what's another cool thing about Daniel is uh, it's, it's broken up in a really weird way, the book is, uh, from like a linguistic standpoint. Um, the, the Hebrew Bible was written in Hebrew, uh, but Daniel is one of the exceptions to that where there are, um, it's like four, like four parts of it are written in Aramaic, uh, which is interesting because that was uh, <laughs> the tongue of the Babylonians. And so you kind of get this picture looking at the book, and when you think about the story, it kind of makes sense, but this fractured identity of the Israelites, where they are no longer in their land. Uh, they are no longer, they no longer have a temple. Um, and then, you know, the scriptures have transitioned uh, from Daniel's standpoint, where it's, it starts off in Hebrew, and then it blurs in Aramaic, and then it's back to Hebrew, and then Aramaic again. Um, but it's, it's fractured, um, and it shows that where Daniel's coming from, like the lines are now blurred for what it looks like to be God's people in a foreign land. Um, and so I thought just from that, that standpoint, that was really cool. And in my opinion, it just, it's a testament to the circumstances of their time. Uh, so Daniel's really cool. And for me, as somebody who works with, uh, with teenagers, hopefully y'all are off your phones back there. Uh, usually they're like right here to me, so I can just kick my shoe off at them if I see a phone. Um, but that is not, I can't, I'm not Justin Tucker. I can't make it back there. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, what's really cool is all of the, well, not really cool for them, I guess, but, uh, all of the, the people who were taken captive of the line of David, the King, uh, the line of the Kings, uh, in Daniel, they were, they were all, you know, 12 to 15 years old, uh, scholars think, but yet they were, uh, really important to the King of Babylon. They were really useful. Uh, they were really, and as we'll see with Daniel, uh, really, really impactful, despite the fact that we would consider them children. Uh, so I've always found that inspiring and really cool to uh, just 
you know, think about. Um, but as we read the story, think about those things. Think about the reality of the situations that they're facing. Think about the fact that they're literally, you know, teenagers in this story, um, at least for the first part of it here. And um, man, that God, God can use anybody. It doesn't matter your age. doesn't matter where you come from, where you are. Um, it's really cool. So we'll jump in here with uh, verse number one. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And the king ordered Ashpenaz, the king of his official, or I'm sorry, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking. That would have ruled me out. They would have just killed me in, in Israel. Uh, they'd have been like, sorry, you don't make the cut. Um, uh, with, uh, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge and who had ability for serving in the king's court, and he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food, and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, it's an interesting, interesting story, and we'll kind of dive into some of the details, but it seems when we read this stuff, like the language is weird, the names are weird, uh, we're estranged to the place names and, and, and where they would have been, and it's really easy as Christians in the 21st century to look at this abstractly and be like, that's, that's cool and all, but I can't really relate to that. I don't really, you know, how, how can I get in like, and, and put myself in this story? It's really difficult. Um, and the reality is none of us are being taken captive by Babylon, or at least in a physical sense. And so what we have to do to kind of get a, you know, get a feel for this is we have to put ourselves in their shoes. And the New Testament writers felt the same way about that. And so 1 Peter 5 says this, or I'm sorry, it's not, is it first? Yeah, it's 1 Peter 5. I've got two passages from there in here. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 12 says, through Silvanus, our brother, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon. Now that phrase is interesting. And what Peter's talking about in context is the she who is in Babylon is the church, like it's church is that he's writing to. Uh, Chosen together with you, sends greetings, so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Come on up here, DJ. <laughs> uh, peace be to you all who are in Christ. Uh, it was Steve at the nine, so it had to be you for the 11. Um, but, um, you know, Peter, the way he thinks about Babylon, uh, in Peter's day, Babylon was no longer a thing. It was Rome. Rome was the, the opposing government force of the day. And that was the, you know, that was who was persecuting the church at the time. Um, but yet Peter still chooses to, uh, to relay what he thinks about the, the state of the church as being in Babylon. And if you think about it from his standpoint, like he's writing to, to Gentile house churches, essentially, or mixed Gentile Jew uh, churches, and they're, 
Like they're under persecution. They're meeting, they're on the run, they're in a land that is not familiar, it's not theirs, um, and they're living for values that are not shared uh, by the governments that are oppressing them. And so when Peter thinks about that situation, he says, you know what, we're in Babylon. Like we may not be in Babylon, but it sure feels like we're captives in Babylon. And I think that's a really, really helpful way to think about who we are and where we are as a church. I don't know if you guys have scrolled social media lately, but I, for one, read what I see, and I'm like, I don't know what's going on anymore. <laughs> like, the world is a really strange place. Um, my daughter this morning, uh, she, uh, <laughs> kids say the funniest things, and it's like my favorite that she can talk and, and articulate things now. Um, but this morning, I filled the, the water bowl for my cats with water, which, by the way, if anybody's looking for two cats, you can have mine. Uh, they are not even for sale. They are for free, um, specifically one of them that hates my children. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, but she was like, she was like, Dad, the cats didn't drink all their water. And I was like, well, it, it takes some time, you know, for them to, I was like, they don't have big bellies, you know, it takes them some time to drink their water. And uh, she was like, oh, well, can I show them how to drink it? And I was like, please don't drink out of the cat bowl, Ruby. That's not a... It's not a good thing for us to do today. <laughs> Maybe another day, but not today. And she was like, yeah, I'm not a cat, right? I'm not a cat. And I was like, no, you're not a cat. And then I thought about it, and I was like, there are people today who think they're cats. I was like, so this is a huge win as a parent that my daughter of three years old knows that she's not a cat. So that's an accomplishment. Um, <laughs> but... Um, but that's just a testament to the world that we live in. Like, it's a, there's a lot of strange ideas and philosophies and, and all these things, and it's very easy to not feel at home. It's very easy to look at our culture and feel like you don't belong, and that's because we don't. We don't have values, and we don't uh, live in such a way that, that the world around us lives, or at least we shouldn't. And so if I had to give my message a title today, it'd be called Thriving in Babylon, uh, because we all... Right, like to get by in 2023, you pretty much have to have like six jobs. Like that's just what it is, um, and it's a strange world on top of that. And so, like we're all accustomed to just we're just getting by, right? And whether that's economical or whether that's spiritually, like I think that you know if you're not there now, you've been in a place where <clears throat> like you're just skating by, you're just existing. Like you go to church, but you're not going to church. You know what I mean? Um, or you're you know it's just life starts to feel numb to a certain degree when you're in that mode. Um, but what God wants for us is not to just live in Babylon. Uh, it's not to just exist and be a part of whatever's going on with no intentionality. Uh, his desire is for us to thrive and display his love and his character to the nations, regardless of our circumstances. And so I hope today, as we kind of dive into the book of Daniel, um, I think there's some really practical helps to, for what it looks like to thrive in Babylon, because it's a really hard thing to do. Uh, it's really difficult to, to live contrary and to believe contrary to the very loud culture that surrounds us. Um, and it's also very hard to be intentional. How many of y'all have a hard time being intentional about things? Just me. My hand is up. I'm like the, one of the least intentional people I know. Like, things just kind of happen, and I'm, I'm there for it. I'm, I'm wherever the wind blows. That's kind of my, my personality, which isn't a good thing at all times. Uh, sometimes it is, but usually it bites me on the rear end. Uh, but ultimately, on that note, we're sojourners living in a place that's ultimately not our home. So how do we thrive in Babylon? There's a few things 
that I think we should be mindful of that we can see in the life of Daniel um, that we'll kind of dig out here. So the first thing that I want to talk about that we'll dig deep into, or not deep, but into those first uh, seven verses is let's talk about valuables. When I say the word valuables, when you think about what that is, I want you to stop and think about what is valuable to you. When I say the word valuables, do you think about, do you think about money? You think about your cars? You think about your house, your nest egg, your job, so on and so forth. What is on that list? And you don't have to answer out loud, but I think for all of us, that list is gonna look a little bit different. We all prioritize things in our lives that may matter to us, may not matter to others, um, but what we value from this standpoint is really, really important, and, and here's why. The enemy has values too. And when we read this chapter, what I want you to see is that Nebuchadnezzar, for all practical purposes, the way that he operates, he operates in the same way that our enemy does. And the devil has been operating the same way for millennia, right? For thousands of years, he's been operating and deceiving and lying and conquering. And Nebuchadnezzar is a, is a really good picture of that. Um, so he values things. He, things matter to the enemy. He is after things. And so to determine what should be valuable to us, we should look at this passage and we should say, okay, what is valuable then to the enemy in this specific circumstance? Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we can see in those first couple of verses, he chooses to hijack the children. And not just children, children of royal descent. He's, he's going after like the top of the line, like the lineage of David, God's people from Judah. Like that's, that's what he's after. And he's after and he's taking them and he's, he's literally reprogramming them over a three-year program to serve him and his kingdom. And can I say to you, this is nothing different. That still happens today. The devil is after our children. He's after those who we, we have influence over, and he's trying to take them and deploy them for his, his services. That's, that's what's happening. And as we look at this, like the, the enemy gets everything if he gets our kids, everything. Because everything that you will work for in your life will either be carried on by your children or it will not. If, if, it's, if the buck stops with you and the devil gets your children, guess what? None of it mattered for all practical purposes. And that's, a, you know, for me as a young parent, I've got young kids. I've still got a long way to go. Uh, so I'm not here to point fingers and tell you that I know better than you because I don't. Um, but I am telling you <clears throat> that for me, that's a sobering thought that, you know, I'm one step away from making decisions and doing things that could alter the future of my whole, my children, my grandchildren, and whatever comes after that, great-grandchildren. <laughs> um, but that's scary. And if you're sitting in here and you're like, that doesn't apply to me, I don't have children. That's, you don't. But you do have people that you have influence over. And you personally are somebody that the enemy is after. It's not just your children. And we'll discover that as we read on. The enemy is after us. He wants you. What gives, so in this situation, what gave the enemy a foothold? Because we read, we read the first couple of verses and we're like, okay, they were taken into Babylon captive. There's a ton of backstory to that. If you want to read uh, like uh, Second King, Second Samuel, stuff like that, it kind of gives you the lead up uh, to what's going on. But here's the long short of it. Uh, the sins of their fathers, basically. Those who came before them made some really, really bad decisions. Uh, if you read Jeremiah chapter nine, it says, their tongue is a deadly arrow, verse number eight. Uh, it speaks deceit, 
With his mouth, one speaks peace to his neighbor, but inwardly he sets an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things? And the Lord's talking about Jerusalem and Judah, declares the Lord. On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? For the mountains, I will take up a weeping and a wailing, and for the pastures of the wilderness, a dirge. I don't know what a dirge is, but doesn't sound good. Because they are laid waste so that no one passes through, and the lowing of the cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the sky and the beasts have fled. They are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. When God looked at the situation of Jerusalem, he said, you've broken your covenant. Something has to be done. I am going to judge you. And all of those people probably never thought that their personal decisions would affect their descendants for hundreds of years. And as we sit here this morning, like we have to realize that our wrongdoing, the sin that we are a part of, the life that we live, like it has implications far beyond us. It does. And that's scary. Because those who we have influence over, whether it's our children, coworkers, friends, family, whoever, whoever that is for you, understand that what you do that nobody knows about, it affects you. And because it affects you, it affects them. But we don't think about it that way. Because in 21st century America, we're like, what's my business is my business. Y'all are trying to be up in my business. And it's like, well, you post about it every day. So like, is it your business? Or like, like do you want feedback? Like, what's, what's going on here? Um, you know, we want privacy because what's going on with me is not your problem. And as the church, that doesn't exist. Our business is our business because we're supposed to help each other and bear one another's burdens. And this idea of, well, my problems are my problems and it doesn't affect anybody, that's just not true. It's not true. It wasn't true for Judah and the Israelites, and it wasn't, it's not true today. It's just not. So in the face of evil, in the face of an enemy that wants us and everything that we love, what kind of attitude should we have? Second Peter, or I'm sorry, First Peter, we'll go back to First Peter chapter 5, verse number 8. We're a little bit before where we were uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, Peter says this, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We were talking about intentionality. And like I said, that's a struggle of mine. I'm just going to be transparent. Like, you know, someday I have no plan whatsoever and good stuff just happens. This message, I just sat my hand on the keyboard and it appeared. Uh, Just kidding. That did not happen. Um, But here's the thing. You know who is intentional if we're not? The enemy is. He's walking around. He's seeking. He's looking. He's looking for somebody who's weak, who's not prepared, who's not living intentionally with a gospel-centered focus. He's looking for somebody to take out and ruin their life so he can ruin everything that comes after them. And if we're not intentional, if we're not living in a way that is aware, then guess what? Guess who's for lunch tomorrow? You are. That's scary. A passive approach to life is not one that will withstand the enemy. A passive approach to raising your children is not going to cut it. Because guess what? They're going to go and they're going to be the enemy's lunch. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not in five years. Maybe not in ten years. But if they're not prepared, they're on the list. They're on the list. Which is why Peter says, hey, listen, be sober. 
Like be, be vigilant enough to look around and see what's going on and do something about it and be intentional about guarding what it is that we have that is valuable. And in the eyes of the Lord, what's valuable? People, people are valuable. God doesn't really care about, about things. And whatever that, that list we have of valuables, if there's things that are high on that list, that's a mistake. Because ultimately, it's just, you know, it's, it's stuff that doesn't matter. Jesus said, lay up your treasure in heaven where, where moth and rust doesn't corrupt it. And I don't know if any of you own machinery, but rust, rust is, uh, is terrible. <laughs> it's really terrible for things, but it happens because it's a material thing. Um, but if we invest our time and our energy into people, people matter. Your children matter. Your family, your friends, your neighbor, they matter. And that's who the enemy wants. The enemy isn't after your material things. He wants to give you material things to distract you from the fact that the immaterial things that you have are what actually matters. It's, it's scary. It's really scary. And the mentality that we have to have when we're, when we're thinking about this, we have to be on the alert. We have to be aware. And we have to be intentional. If we want to preserve our valuables <clears throat> as we kind of shift gears into this next section here, we also should consider taking a tactful approach to exercising our values. So how many of y'all have like things that you feel strongly about? Values, convictions, whatever you want to call it, right? Biblical, not biblical, we all have things that we, we care about, that matter to us, right? And Daniel was no exception to that. And so as we kind of jump in here, what you'll see is that Daniel's position on things that we're about to, about to read and talk about, uh, what he was against, what he was for, was, was probably the same as anybody else that was taken into captivity with him. There were at least several hundred people in this wave of captivity that were just like Daniel. But guess what? We have a story about four of them. So there's something different, not about what they believed, but about how maybe they went about believing what they believed. And so what sets Daniel apart from the hundreds or thousands of other people that went into captivity with him from the line of David? Verse 8 says this, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. That's another one. I'd have been like, you got steak, bro? I'm in. Let's go. I'll forget everything about my heritage. <clears throat> so, uh, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Let's pause for a second. You're taken by a hostile army that maybe doesn't speak the same language as you, and you're going to go try to convince them to do something different, trying to fumble through Aramaic, like, hey, listen, I know that this is like your thing, but I want to try something different. That's, pretty, that's a pretty bold approach. We'll see how that pans out for him. Uh, verse 9, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your face as looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. He's like, listen, Daniel, I feel for you, but I want my head to stay on my body. Like, so if we can figure out a way where both of these things happen, maybe we have a deal. Verse 11, but Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence 
and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he's like, hey, listen, let's just try something out. And if you don't like what you see, then you can deal with it on your terms and we'll, we'll go that route. Daniel, uh, he's really rolling the dice on this one. He's, he's pretty crafty. Um, the difference, I think, between, and this is kind of where we'll park and spend some time because I think this is really important. Uh, Daniel, the difference between him and everybody else that might have been with him and his buddies was his disposition. His position was the same, right? He believed the same things. They came from the same culture. They spoke the same language. But how they went about that was a totally different story. And I think one of the things that, uh, let me take a water break real quick. Sorry, my throat's a little dry. I woke up this morning and I was like, I need coffee and ibuprofen right now. Um, <laughs> so I'm trying to, trying to stay hydrated. Um, but how, how Daniel went about things, I think, is what set him apart. The decisions that he made, how he went about that, was very different than everybody else that was with him, obviously, because we don't hear about them, and also how we go about things today. So we talked about valuables. Now we're talking about values. Now, all of us have strong feelings about things. And if you are on social media ever, you realize that that's a forum where, where people really like to promote what they feel and think about things in a very strong way. And they will say things that they would never say to your face. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the fact is, people have very strong opinions and they make themselves look really stupid defending things sometimes. And I do the same thing. I'm guilty of this also. I really try not... If you notice my social media, I just really don't comment on stuff unless I'm trying to be stupid uh, because I'm going to end up looking stupid either way. So I might as well be funny. Um, that's kind of my, my philosophy. But I feel like sometimes as Christians, we're labeled, uh, you know, we get labeled as unloving or hypocritical or, or rude. Um, and the problem that I have with that is that it's usually an accurate assumption. Uh, usually when people say that they feel that way about something that was said or, or a specific person, I'm like, that's, that's very valid. Like how you feel you were treated by a Christian, like it, it happened. And that super, like that sucks. Like that sucks that there are uh, many of us within the church that, yeah, yeah you're, how you feel about something might be the right position. How you feel about abortion might be the right move. But how you talk to other people that view things differently than you, it's a really bad move on us a lot of the time. And if we're honest with ourselves, we see it a lot and we participate in it a lot. And what's interesting about Daniel here <clears throat> is he like he goes about the situation like he could have went to the guard and said and and most scholars speculate that it was unkosher meats and drinks that they were they were being offered. And obviously Daniel as a, as trying to keep the law, he wasn't going to want to eat that and neither would anybody else. And he could have took a bashful approach, and he could have went to the officer and said, you fill in the blank, like, I'm not eating that garbage, you're going to have to kill me, whatever. He didn't do that. Uh, he took a very tactful, crafty approach. Daniel figured out a way to balance getting creative with things, but also living by his convictions. Like, he, he had a good relationship with the guard, like, it says that God gave him favor with him. And we don't know how exactly that happened, but for some reason, Daniel, like, had a good enough relationship with this person who was his captor to tell him, hey, listen, I know that you're commanded by Nebuchadnezzar who could kill you to do this thing, but I want you to try something different. And this guy obliged. Like, there's, there's something going on in that picture where we can see, okay, Daniel, 
Daniel went about things a really different way to make his point and to live by his convictions. So what, what's the sauce there? What is the sauce? Proverbs uh, 13.10 says this, through insolence comes nothing but strife, or pride rather, uh, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. If there's anything that wasn't present in this scenario that, worked, that made things work out for Daniel's favor, it was pride. And pride ruins everything. Pride creates the problems that we deal with. Pride creates the disagreements, the squabbles that seem to never end, right? Every, we're in an election year, or we're going on an election year. It's already, it's started way too early. I hate this stuff. Um, <laughs> just to be honest, I'm done with it. Um, but, you know, election years are, it's a constant conversation between two different sides that are really both crooked at the end anyway, uh, trying to look right to the others. And it, it's, you know, it's ridiculous. And it is ridiculous, but we do the same thing. Uh, we are so obsessed with being right, we are willing to, like, to ruin our relationship with somebody else to prove that we have the right opinion in a specific scenario because it's biblical, and I'm going to make you feel like crap if you don't share that opinion. Like, that's what we do, but that's not at all what Daniel did. Biblical convictions are, are phenomenal. They're great. We should have them. We should be righteous. We should help shine light into the world through the righteousness that Jesus gives, Jesus said, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. That darkness that that comes from, that's where pride lives. We're not supposed to remain there. We're not supposed to remain in the darkness. So how is it that we're categorized this way? Because if our position is right, which I believe that if it's truly a biblical position, the Bible is correct, God is correct, and if that's unpopular, we should be willing to take that stand. Okay, great, awesome. Now, here's the problem. We take that stand the wrong way. Our position is right. Our disposition is way off. Jesus had this to say about that. He said, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. And I think about this a lot when I think about like how I should respond to things because Jesus is, his method of what is good is, hey, you know, don't be a dummy, right? Like you should, you should be intelligent or wise like a serpent or crafty. Uh, and you should also be innocent. You should also be righteous and good. There's a balance between these two things. And Daniel figured that out. Now, what's, what's cool here about what Jesus said in chapter 10, that word he said shrewd, uh, the Greek term is from, phronomoi. I don't do a whole lot of Greek, so if I pronounce that wrong, please don't stone me. Um, but that same Greek root, is used in the, uh, the Greek Old Testament to describe the serpent in Eden when it says he was crafty. He was more crafty than any beast of the field. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you're going out there, like how you should be on the alert and conducting yourself is you should be crafty. Sometimes you're gonna have to get a little creative. Sometimes blasting your opinion at the top of your lungs, even though it's right, isn't the right way to go about things. It may make more enemies. It may estrange more people to the gospel than it actually brings in. And so there's a tension between these two things. Both of them are important, um, but you got to walk the balance. And I wish I could give you a concrete list of do's and don'ts for this, uh, but there isn't one. Uh, (laughs) We have to lean into the spirit for things like this because ultimately I as a person am just not capable of living a gospel-centered life by myself. I can't do it. We have to have the spirit for that. And if, any, if anybody was crafty about living out their convictions, it was our friend Daniel. 
So how do we live out our values, right? Because that's what Daniel was doing. He was trying to figure out a way to live out his values in Babylon. And really, what did, think about this. What did Daniel really have to gain in this scenario by forcing the envelope on something like this? Like, he wasn't, he wasn't after a position of power. Like, he wasn't, like, odds are, if I'm thinking logically, like, he, he probably would have, things could have gone south real quick had he not went with the program, but he chose to go against it anyway. Like, he wasn't, Daniel wasn't trying to be right. He was just trying to be righteous. He was just trying to do the right thing. He was willing to put his neck on the line, literally, to live out his convictions. But he did that in a meaningful, intentional way. So how do we, how do, we do that in a way that allows us to thrive in Babylon? And I kind of picked these two things out here uh, that I think kind of make sense. Uh, <laughs> they make sense to me. Uh, does the way that we're living our faith produce two things? Number one, does it produce righteousness? Let me put it in layman's terms for the teenagers in the back. Are you still living like a piece of crap, even though you know Jesus? Does it produce righteousness? Paul said this in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. When Paul thinks about, like, hey, Paul, what's the litmus test to figuring out if I'm, like, living out my faith properly? He says, well, here's some things that the Spirit should be producing in you if you're living by faith and you're living by the Spirit. And he says, after all that, he says in verse 24, now those who belong to Christ Jesus, which is all of us, have crucified the flesh with its, what, passions and desires. What we want What we value, if it's not what God values, it doesn't matter. What matters is that we're living out, we're living by the Spirit, and people around us can see that. God forbid that we're a a, a tree that doesn't produce any fruit. I've got a bunch of really annoying trees in my yard, and I'm like, the least y'all could do is is grow something that I could eat. It'd be really cool. But guess what? I'm going to cut them down, and I'm going to plant a fruit tree one of these days. My wife's not aware of that yet, but it's going to happen, and I'll probably do it myself, and it's probably going to fall on my house. Um, (laughs) But, hey, we'll see what happens. Um, hmm. I I closed it. There we go. Um, Anyway, so, but are we producing fruit? When Jesus saw the fig tree that wasn't producing any fruit, does anybody know what he did with it? He said, cut that thing down and throw it in the fire, which is pretty harsh. But the reality of it is, is if we're, if we're uh, faithful Christians and we're not producing fruit, something is wrong. Something isn't right. And we should be aware of that. Number two, so number one, righteousness is our faith producing the fruits of the spirit. Number two, results. How many of y'all like results? Awesome. Results are amazing. Uh, so verse number 15, we'll read here. Uh, Daniel chapter 1, at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better. And they were fatter. They got fatter by eating vegetables, y'all. Be mindful. Than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued, like the the, the guard that, that Daniel had a good relationship with. So he continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. He's like, I don't, I don't believe it, king. Like, it's cheaper to feed these boys vegetables, and it's better. 
Then at the end of the 10 days, or I'm sorry, at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and out of all of them, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in, the, in his realm. Now, if I were Nebuchadnezzar, I'd be like, oh, okay, you're smart. What's the square root of 67? Hmm? I don't even know the answer to that. <laughs> Just, and my, my guess is they probably would have rattled it off like crazy because it was, uh, you know, <clears throat> they were um, blessed beyond measure. I had another joke there, but I'm going to keep it to myself. Uh, <laughs> Do you know how them Jewish boys be? I'm just saying. They're smart. They're smart. It's not a bad thing. They're smart. He t- pastor told me to say it. <laughs> I'm just saying. There's the reason why they all have more money than us. It's because they're smart. Okay. Can you, can you just take that live? <laughs> take the live stream down. That's going to get flagged. Uh, yeah, oh. Okay, I'm going to take a drink real quick and regroup. All right, amen. We'll just go ahead and close. Ah, <laughs> oh, man, but, but think, about, think about what happened, though, <laughs> as we ring it back in here. Uh, think about what happened in the, uh, in the story. Like, they, were, they had vegetables and water instead of eating steak and, and, and juice, basically, for their meals. And yet, somehow, they, they thickened up. They got bigger, they got stronger, their complexion was better, and somehow or another in that 10-day period, they miraculously became full of wisdom and wicked smart. And they go to, to, to Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, he's like, wow, y'all are amazing. And, you know, I think a lot of people read this and they're like, yeah, that's why we should eat all vegetables because, you know, look at them, their complexion was better, and that's not at all what the story is trying to communicate. What the story is trying to communicate is because of their faith, God yielded the results, not their diet. It had nothing to do with the food that they ate. Nothing. Maybe a little bit. Nothing. Their physical obedience triggered a supernatural response. Here's the missing piece of the puzzle for for myself and a lot of us is that we expect God to do big things, but we're not willing to be obedient in the little things. Right? He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. That's right. So if we want to thrive in Babylon, we must understand that it is truly an impossible task if the Lord isn't with us, if he's not a part of the equation, because it wasn't the vegetables. It wasn't Daniel's craftiness that ultimately made it all happen. Those were components of it that God used, but ultimately God gave Daniel favor with the, with the overseer. God gave them supernatural results from eating not, uh, Um, unkosher foods. He gave that to them. It had nothing to do with what they did. They were a part of the equation because God desires human God partnerships, but at the end of the day, he did that. He was a part of that. And if we want to thrive in Babylon, we, we can't do it. If we want to raise our families upright, it has to be intentional. But even if we're intentional, if God's not a part of the picture, it doesn't matter. We're not going to accomplish it. We're not going to do it. We're not going to succeed. The enemy's going to hunt us. And so as we come to a close, I just, I have three questions that I just kind of came to mind that are 
uh, just really good indicators. And I would encourage you, um, think about these questions, ask them to yourself, but ask somebody else who you value your opinion. If you're married, ask your, your husband or your wife. I feel like they'll probably be honest with you. Um, or if you're a part of a small group, talk about these in your small group to get honest feedback from people who care about you and want to see you built up. Question number one is, are you living your life as though you're a part of a war? Are you aware? Are you, are you sober and alert, as Peter said? Because if we're not, we know who's knocking at the door tomorrow morning. Are we living as though we're a part of a war? Number two, does your disposition help your position or does it weaken it? Think about it. We, we, all, we all give our time, we give our money, we give our effort and resources for the sake of the gospel, but what if the things that we give our very life to we're taking away from because of how we go about it? That's a real question. Our, is how we operate, is it taking away from what we're actually trying to do? Does your disposition help your position or does it weaken it? And number three, is your faith producing righteousness and results? Listen, I know James said without faith, without works, faith is dead. Like there, you know, not that we can achieve salvation by works, uh, but if, if salvation doesn't produce good works, then what do we have? If, if, if people don't see Jesus in us, people who have placed their faith and loyalty in Jesus, what are we doing? Are we, are we reflecting righteousness? Are we yielding results? And as a word of encouragement, our church is filling up. People are getting baptized. Like as a collective, the Lord is using our church. And glory to God for that. Give the Lord a hand. That's right. Thank you for watching and joining us for our church online. I pray this experience was just what you needed today. If you made a decision for the Lord to follow Christ, or if the Lord did something in your heart that was special today, we would love to hear about it. Post it in the comments, send us a message, and we'll reach out to you. Have a wonderful week, and God bless.